0: Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that cinematic Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and join me on the bridge. This is
1: Tyler Orton laughing uncontrollably at Buster Keaton shorts from a century and a half ago.
0: <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the strange state of the Star Trek film franchise.
1: Yeah, so Cam, we got news uh, last week that, you know, Star Trek has a definitive date for its 14th film in the franchise it is going to be released in june 2023 and cam i i've got some numbers that i'd like to share with you yeah so from the years 2009 through 2021 you know that 12 year period guess how many star trek films we've had cam
0: well are we including renegades (laughs) no (laughs) uh well we've had three
1: Yes, and from 1979 through 1991, another 12-year period. How many films did we have, Cam? We had six. So double the number during that 12-year period. That is just like mind-blowing to me, especially considering the success of the Kelvin film franchise, in which it, they these movies were incredibly profitable. And I'm taking this as a whole, I think Star Trek Beyond underperformed, but uh, Star Trek Into Darkness was the most successful film in the entire franchise. Uh, We had much higher profile actors during that period. It broke into the mainstream in a way that those first six movies that I mentioned, that you mentioned, did not. And it also managed to gross international dollars, which has eluded Star Trek for so much of his existence in the film franchise as well. And I just cannot understand why Paramount has not been able to capitalize on the success other than the fact that, Ken, you can vouch for me, Paramount might be number two, might make an argument for number one worst-run Hollywood film studio that we have right now. I usually come
0: down on Sony as the worst, uh, but Paramount, yeah, is pretty close. Paramount, the thing is, they had... For a while, they had the glow of the Transformers franchise, keeping them very, very vibrant at the box office. But even that's fallen off. So you're right. Like, they are kind of struggling. I guess, no, I don't even know what else they have at this point. Yeah, I don't know.
1: At least Sony has that new deal with Netflix that will get a lot more, I guess, you know, coverage, you know, like profile for their theatrical films moving forward. I am actually kind of surprised that Netflix just hasn't, outright bought sony at this point because sony doesn't really have like a, a streaming play whereas paramount plus i can tell you as a subscriber a canadian subscriber it is profoundly underwhelming and like while there's zero like film output and we are just not getting the catalog that um you know american subscribers having access to cam i i really only use paramount plus to watch like Old episodes, the back catalog of Survivor, and really nothing else.
0: Well, yeah, because here in Canada, we also don't get the Star Trek shows on Paramount Plus, which is really lame.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny for me because I look, I invested in all those discs for Blu Ray and DVDs. So if I'm watching like an old episode of Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, TNG, I'm going to my discs. Um, I guess I use Netflix for you know, Voyager episodes for the original series episodes. And, Kim, there's yet another streaming service up here in Canada, Crave, and that's where I'm going to get, say, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Lower Decks. So it's like I've got, like, three different, like, mediums that I have to tap into if I want Star Trek access here in Canada versus the Americans. They can just go right to Paramount+, and it's all there for them.
0: Yeah, I I wish we would get all these, especially the newer Star Trek shows on Paramount. I don't care about the the library as much because like you, I've got the discs of all DS9, original series, etc. But I don't like Crave and I just really would like to use Paramount Plus because then like you, I can feast on Survivor back seasons as well as watch my Star Trek episodes on one service.
1: Cam, okay, I honestly don't know what has a worst user interface, Crave or Paramount Plus, but they're both just awful compared with, uh, say, oh, okay, if I was ranking user interfaces, uh, I, I would go with number one, Netflix, number two, Disney Plus, number three, Amazon Prime, and then for all the others that I have subscriptions to, it's just like whatever. They're all just terrible.
0: Yeah, I think Crave um, and uh, CBS slash Par- oh, I guess it's all Paramount Plus now, but um, Paramount Plus ranks just under Tubi.
1: Tubi, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, but look, 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 we're tackling the film franchise here, and I think maybe one of the ways we can kind of discuss how we're in this current state, maybe what we want to see moving forward, it's why don't we tackle, like, the... the there are four main projects over the last five years that have been floated... They're in various, state, various states of development. Some have just kind of been, you know, kind of quashed at this point. But why don't we jump on them one by one and then just talk about where we go from here. And I, I think the one that has the highest profile, the one that I think would attract, you know, um, fans outside the Star Trek film franchise as well. Let's get it out of the way. Let, let, let's talk about the Quentin Tarantino project here in which Tarantino, you know, when we had the 50th anniversary of Star Trek back in 2016 seems as if Paramount didn't want to acknowledge that it had been around for 50 years and they really didn't do much to kind of promote the fact that beyond was coming and the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Tarantino was floating that idea like, "Hey, I wouldn't mind, you know, taking a crack at this." You know, like he had been on the Nerdist podcast kind of floating his idea how like yesterday's Enterprise should have been a feature film rather than kind of this amazing one-off episode that we got here. And I think, you know, J.J. Abrams was like, I wonder what this Tarantino has to do, what his pitch might be with regards to kind of tackling the franchise. Cam, as a Tarantino fan, like, were you kind of intrigued by this concept of him moving forward? Or were you a, a little bit wary about him putting his energy and resources into tackling a franchise that you find so near and dear to your own heart?
0: Yeah, it's. I was of so many mixed emotions, because I, I don't know if, you know, the general movie fans maybe listening, no, but like Quentin Tarantino has always said, his plan was 10 movies and he was retiring. Well, this would have been his 10th movie, in theory, if he were to direct it. So I was always like, well, maybe he doesn't hold true to that, but that makes me nervous nonetheless. I, I want to see Tarantino doing what he does best, you know, on his own terms, not doing franchise films. We've got enough filmmakers making franchise films. But that said, the idea of Tarantino pitching a concept I thought was really exciting because he thinks so outside the box that I was like, okay, he's going to do something with a Star Trek movie. I can't predict. I would have no idea what it's even going to be. And that's not necessarily the case for some of the other Star Trek films we've gotten recently. I don't know that the idea of bringing Khan back for Into Darkness was something that fans wouldn't have been able to think of. It, It feels like kind of in line with what's a popular element of this property, let's revive that. Like, I think Tarantino would have done something cool. My main concern with Tarantino, though, was the fact it seemed he was basically just going to be handing this, you know, story idea he had off to the writer of The Revenant, Mark L. Smith. I have nothing against Mark L. Smith, but at what point does it become Tarantino Trek versus, well, it's, you know, he had the story kernel of the idea, but ultimately it's kind of an amalgamation of people all working together if I'm going to get a Trek movie made by Tarantino, I kind of want the pure thing versus, I don't know, just the, the, you know, the the pitch,
1: basically. Well, do you think a lot of it would just depend on, like, I, I, I never really believed that Tarantino was actually going to direct this film. I, I think this is more, like, he had, you know, pitched hard, like, oh, yeah this movie's only going to get made if I get to direct it. And then he kind of backed off that idea. Like, well, I don't know if this would count as, you know, my 10th movie because it's, you know, somebody else's franchise. I would not count that in my au revoir, you know, necessarily. And so he he was kind of like stepping back here. I, I just wonder if they find kind of the right director who is able to work within kind of this, Tarantino sort of framework like he's such a distinct voice though and like you can really tell you know when people are doing like Tarantino rip-offs I just think that this would have just been such a director dependent sort of kind of uh, script that they would have to develop into something really interesting right uh,
0: yeah I mean Tarantino's written some um, scripts in the past that were made into movies like Natural Born Killers and True Romance he didn't direct either of those movies and his stamp is very much present, but he's also writing the screenplay so the dialogue really carries through. With this case, I just wonder, would we have felt Tarantino other than maybe a really curious setup for a movie we wouldn't have thought of?
1: Well, he said the only way that he would kind of pursue this or you know, have some sort of creative input is if J.J. Abrams, the producer of this film through the Bad Robot production company, would agree that it could be rated R. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of tells you, okay, they're willing to go somewhere Star Trek has never gone before. <laughs> um, as much as we might criticize, you know, like Discovery for dropping the F-bombs or featuring, like, Klingon nudity, uh, because in, in my mind, Star Trek always works best when you're working within the film franchise, but I can imagine kind of a Logan-esque sort of spin-off, offshoot, like something where you're kind of, you're you're throwing Jello to the wall and seeing what sticks, much in the way that Joker did, and that was just a huge smash for Warner Brothers, and that did not really take place in the, the Jared Leto universe established within, <laughs> you know, Joker. You know, so
0: the most unholy of universes. <laughs> but
1: look, yes, um, but we uh, eventually got some more details about this, where Tarantino is like, yeah, I I wanted the Kelvinverse crew to come back. It did not necessarily mean that it. Took or It did not necessarily mean that it took place within the same universe as the Kelvin crew, if that kind of makes sense. You're using the same cast, they're playing the same characters, but it doesn't have to play hard and fast with all the rules already established there. And eventually we found out that it was going to be based on a piece of the action, which I thought was kind of like, oh, that seems like a little... Uh, too on the nose with Tar- Tarantino doing kind of like this kind of gangster's homage, you know, like a 1920s, 1930s gangster's homage, right?
0: It seemed like, yeah. I mean, I remember when you and I were talking about this way back when this uh, whole news story broke, I remember we were wondering if it could be like a, like very dark um, Klingon story or if it could be a mirror universe thing. Um, this felt almost too on the nose and that you and I never even pitch that as a potential idea. It, I almost don't know what to make of it, though, because when Tarantino says, oh, I want to do a piece of the action, what does that even mean? Like, I somehow doubt he's doing a remake of that episode. I feel like there's some element of that episode that he wants to riff on and do something weird with. Because you don't watch any Tarantino movie and be like, oh, he just remade this movie. It's like he picks up kernels of ideas from pop culture that inspires him and turns it into something brand new. So... I don't even know how much to make of the piece of the action thing, other than we probably would have seen fedoras at some point.
1: (laughs) But there's no explanation as to why they're all in the bridge wearing fedoras.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I like the idea of doing these kind of standalone Trek films that aren't dependent on a franchise, especially if they can be driven by a very strong creative voice. I, I don't know that... Again, if Tarantino had been willing to direct this or write the script himself, that would be a more exciting prospect, but it's at least an interesting one. I just wonder what the I wonder what the Mark L. Smith draft is like, and maybe that's a reason the movement never really happened. Like maybe it just didn't deliver something they were
1: confident in. Is it that or is just like Paramount is a complete and utter mess at you know like leading up over the last five years i I think it's more just like the messiness within the the studio politics there than like this just being like a bad script or a, a script that they did not think that they could at least you know give another pass at and i just think that this would have been the best marketing opportunity that star trek has had since they rebooted the franchise in 2009 Well, movies
0: are very expensive to make and we've argued in the past that Star Trek movies don't need to be expensive so they should be making lower budget ones but I'll put that aside for a second. Paramount doesn't have much. They also can't really compete with the big dogs like Disney right now and you know some of these other studios that have a lot more power and whether you look at Star Trek, whether you look at the Transformers franchise which they've struggled with post the Michael Bay films or also Indiana Jones 5 These are all movies that have gone through these endless development hells in terms of trying to basically give their very popular franchises new films. And it just seems like Paramount's really gun-shy, probably because they can't afford to lose.
1: Well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll throw this at you. I, I think Star Trek Beyond costs like around $200 million to produce. I think you can do like a Tarantino Star Trek movie for like maybe half that maybe even like let's say 70 million dollars like i think that's possible uh you know like (laughs) i don't know how expensive 1920s gangsters costumes are going to be i think you can make this very much a uh, like a mix between like on a a new york city backlot sort of set and just kind of a a bottle episode sort of set you know i don't think Mm -hmm. this is going to cost like an arm and leg and i also think go look at the international audiences and the marketing ability. Like, I think international audiences are going to be just really, really interested in what Tarantino is going to do in this kind of sci-fi universe. I think you can also easily market it to North American audiences as well. I think what, what the one bomb that Tarantino has had in his career was Grindhouse that, and it's just international audiences did not come out for this double feature. And Tarantino's talked about it. And like, there, there really isn't like this kind of double feature concept in say Europe or Asia, the same way that there was in North America. And I think that kind of played into the part. I I don't think that they would have suffered from this either. I think this just would have been a winner if only from a marketing perspective though. And I I really don't think like how badly can you screw up like an intriguing idea that Tarantino is pitching like a screenwriter who Revenant's not my favorite movie, but I, I would not say it's a bad script by any means.
0: No, no. And I also think like you can't compete with what Disney's doing right now or several of the other you know major studios with major properties. But you look at what like Fox was doing with some of their X-Men stuff, they made Logan, they made Deadpool. They basically took interesting angles on franchise films and they got a lot of acclaim for it and they made a lot of money. And I just wonder if maybe Paramount would have been smart to do that with Star Trek. You know, like look the $180 million blockbusters aren't really working out for Star Trek. You know, Beyond Underperforms, and maybe it's time to do something interesting and quirky that makes actual general movie fans care about Star Trek films because I don't know that they really do. Uh, the 2009 film was really popular, and as you said, Into Darkness made a lot of money, but I never really got the sense from just the mythical people of the street that like they were really, really excited for Star Trek movies.
1: Kind of like how people feel about Avatar movies.
0: Uh, well, yeah, yeah, true enough, yeah.
1: In that, like, I, I'm, like, the first two Star Trek films from JJ were very, very, like, incredibly popular. Avatar, highest grossing movie, you know, up and well, I I think they, they're back to being, like, the highest grossing movie of all time, <laughs> just <laughs> with their recent uh, China uh, re-release. And I, I just, I, I like Avatar. Avatar is actually a pretty good film. I think it's actually an underrated film. I I just don't know if it's had that kind of cultural impact though and like where people are just, you know, revving up for the next four to seven films that James Cameron wants to produce.
0: Yeah, I think Avatar 2, 3 and 4 will tell the story of the property that is Avatar whether it becomes something that's fan beloved, but it is weird that you have the highest grossing movie of all time
1: that people are kind of like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I it's but, but like, it's just kind of an interesting parallel between where, you know, mm-hmm. Star Trek, you know, kind of is over the last 10 years as, as well. Um, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, though. Just with regards, like, are, is Tarantino just interested in, like, remaking, like, an episode? And if he's going to do that, is it going to be a piece of the action? He had originally pitched, you know... Uh, Yesterday's Enterprise as kind of a feature film. If he was going to do any sort of like uh, redux of like an episode, why not kind of combine the TOS crew and the TNG crew into like uh, kind of another Yesterday's Enterprise sort of adventure?
0: It wouldn't shock me though, I mean the guy is like a garbage disposal for pop culture. Yes. (laughs) It would not shock me if like the way to get to something like um, Piece of the Action is through some sort of interesting time travel paradox type you know story concept that wouldn't shock me at all either
1: but what do you think the idea of like almost doing a takeoff of yesterday's enterprise
0: like straight on um i mean it could definitely work and i it's the sort of thing that had you asked me you know if we could go back in time to 11 year old cam and you'd asked me after star trek 6 what do you think about doing yesterday's enterprise as a movie i'd say no that would never happen like they would never put that on the big screen for a general audience but now they probably
1: would. <laughs> I, look, I think anything's possible nowadays, especially just with the proliferation of like streaming services and like, like you're doing the Snyder Cut. The fact that the Snyder Cut even exists just tells you like anything is possible at this point.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. And we both watched the Snyder Cut, so we can say it's a strange film. <laughs> I,
1: I, I, but I could straight up believe that they would get the casts of like the Kelvinverse in with the cast of TNG which the, the TNG cast has aged very very well. I would just say like it would it would look a little silly I know with like kind of that 30 year difference. It would uh, like it would go over the heads of mainstream audiences, but I think a lot of Star Trek fans could appreciate kind of some of the easter eggs that would be throwing at. Yeah. And could you imagine you know, after Denise Crosby left in season one to go star in Pet Cemetery, she finally gets her big screen like she is the uh, top lining actress in a movie after all these years, right?
0: Well, Tarantino loves to resurrect, you know, actors who were really prominent in decades past. You know, you saw it with Pam Greer and Jackie Brown or Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Why not Denise
1: Crosby? <laughs> she was in um Jackie Brown, right? Like he he yeah. loved her as Tasha Yar. He specifically cast her in Jackie Brown because of his love for Tasha Yar. I like I could totally believe like this being like a Quentin Tarantino movie and enough people just being like interested in what's going on. Think about just like the cultural conversation about people comparing the episode to the feature film that would come out of this. Again, I I know this sounds like absolutely insane what we're discussing right now, but I, I honestly think anything could have been possible. Like with regards to what uh, Tarantino was pursuing here, and I just think he would have
0: done something super weird. Like I think it would bore him if it wasn't weird.
1: <laughs> well, that's just it. It's like if you're not getting a reaction out of people whether it's super positive or super negative, I think you're doing something wrong. If it's just everyone is just very vanilla about what you're doing. And I think Tarantino knows that.
0: And maybe that's the problem with Star Trek Beyond. You and I both enjoyed the movie. I think we ranked it sixth on our Star Trek five. movie ranking. Both of
1: us ranked it number five. I, I, I was just looking over our lists, uh, actually last night, um, just coincidentally.
0: Right, okay, so number five. That's a very respectable showing. But I don't know that it, 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 it kind of delivered a movie that I think... The majority of people that saw it were like, "Yeah, it was it was fine, it was good enough."
1: It, it was that movie. Like, I, I can't criticize it too much, but I also can't like rah rah over it. It was just like you and I. We walked out of the theater. I, I think we saw it in theater together twice, including Barco, and <laughs> both times I was just like, "Yeah, that was a nice movie."
0: Like. I'm passionate about Star Trek, the motion picture, a movie that probably has more storytelling problems going on than Star Trek beyond, but it's doing things. It's really swinging away. I mean, so does Wrath of Khan to much better effect, but I kind of feel like that's what you want. And that's something that is almost frowned upon in franchise filmmaking a lot of the time now where you kind of don't want to swing that hard. You want to deliver something that is kind of what people want from a franchise. And I really am not a fan of this sort of thing, but Tarantino, I don't think, would have followed that kind of line.
1: Cam, I know it's sacrilege to say this, but I, I feel the same way about The Final Frontier, like the fifth Star mm. Trek movie. Like, yeah. it's like... <laughs> I'm not going to say that this is a great movie, but it's a memorable movie. It, it is it is going places. It's trying to do things. And no film, no film out of the 13 that have been produced has captured the spirit of the original the way that that one has. That's all I'm going to say, and I will fight anybody uh, over that opinion. That is my hill to die on right there. So, uh, Cam, I I, I will say this. I still think that this Tarantino project, I I still think it's viable. I don't think it's dead. I think that Paramount slash Viacom slash CBS, they are in a position in which they can green light this script, attach a director make this on the relative cheap. Maybe if it's not the Kelvin crew, maybe you do something with Ethan Peck and some other recast actors. I, I know that you we're getting into like kind of NBC Saturday night movie sort of territory mm-hmm. if I'm pitching it that way. But I still think that this is a very viable sort of project that they could move forward with if only they want to attract more subscribers to Paramount+, Plus, very much how the Snyder Cut was a play to attract more subscribers to HBO Max.
0: Yeah, I totally think so. Part of me wonders, though, if it just, it isn't going to happen now, but it's the sort of thing that's in the Paramount vault, and like a decade from now or something, some studio chief or whatever, somehow stumbles across this, and they're like, huh, Quentin Tarantino, huh? Maybe we should try this. Like, it just seems like something that's kind of notable and could even happen further down the road.
1: I, I, I would not, you know, lick my fingers and squish the wick of the candle and say that this is dark. Mm. <laughs> poetry camp. Poetry.
0: Pure poetry. <laughs>
1: um. Okay, why don't we uh, jump over to uh, probably the next most high-profile project, and that was the S.J. Clarkson-directed film that was immediately coming after... Star Trek Beyond, in which it was going to be a script from J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. They had done some uncredited rewrites or passes on the Star Trek Beyond script. Cam, I remember you remarking uh, quite a bit how J.J. Abrams was on the red carpets, doing a lot of press and saying, like, it's the best script I've ever seen for Star Trek. It's the best Star Trek script. And you kept pointing out, like, what about the one that you're trying to promote, which is Star Trek Beyond? And it's (laughs) like, But essentially, it was going to have uh, the return of Chris Hemsworth as when George Kirk, both Hemsworth and Chris Pine, had signed on, they had contracts, they were getting uh, some pay bumps here. It was going to be kind of this time travel premise, you know, where I, I guess, it, I, I, I like the idea. It, it, it's, you know, James Kirk kind of maybe going back to that great scene in Star Trek Beyond that he was having with McCoy in which he was reflecting how he's now older than his dad when his dad was killed by Nero in the first film. And, like, he's kind of reflecting on his own life, his own career. And so I I, I think this could have been, like, a, a very viable project. I, I just—it's it, so weird how this one just fizzled out because the, cause there was, like— you know, executive turnover at Paramount. They were suddenly so-so on the script. Even Chris Hemsworth came out and said, "Uh, I wasn't gonna do it because you know I, I've seen better scripts in my day." Like it, it was just, it, it was just such a weird kind of like development of this one where they seemed as if they were going to start making it almost as soon as Star Trek Beyond was released in theaters in uh, July of uh, 2016.
0: Well, yeah, I believe the announcement for Quinto and Pine coming back arrived before Beyond was released. They were like, it was a real like confidence move of like, Star Trek's back and we are running. And I just wonder if as soon as those grosses rolled in on Beyond, suddenly they kind of just deflated in confidence and suddenly it didn't feel like a priority to get this movie going. And then, yeah, uh, Hemsworth is costing a fair amount of money. It just... It felt like it was a project that was apparently the greatest story I've ever, you know, told in Star Trek that for some reason something got a lot less exciting to people after the Beyond rolled out. But sometimes I just think you're better to roll the dice. And look, maybe you don't rush this movie, you know, two years after, but maybe three years it comes out after Star Trek Beyond. I think you're better to sometimes roll the dice and just test the waters. Who knows? Like maybe three years after Beyond this Star Trek film comes out. It's got Hemsworth back and suddenly people are excited and go see it. Maybe it's really good. Like maybe it is like a voyage home where suddenly people get really psyched about the movie and into it. You just never really know. But I also think it's a terrible idea to just kind of let your franchise just go dormant. It makes it seem like you've kind of, well, you just don't have any confidence in it.
1: I I totally agree with you. And I, I think the reason why they announced this project when they did like ahead of beyond was also trying to kind of bolster interest in beyond And Mm -hmm. when the grosses underperformed, and and look, nobody lost money on Star Trek Beyond, but it just, it did not blow up the way that Paramount was hoping it would uh, in terms of North American and international grosses. Um, When they see that, you know, that effort to really generate interest in the next movie did not pan out, I I think that really kind of deflated, like, what, you know, the, the executive's interest would be. But, Cam, going backwards, did you say that, you know, Hemsworth was asking for a fair amount of money or a paramount of money?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm going to say fair amount because I don't want to be part of that terrible joke. Okay.
1: (laughs) So look, the fair amount pictures executives, they obviously just could not you know, uh, pulled the trigger on this one. And it just, it, it seemed as if this one was just kind of spinning its wheels for like two years. S.J. Clarkson eventually just departed the project. She went to go direct the pilot episode of the first Game of Thrones spinoff. That was never picked up into series. series. Uh, a lot of complaints about that. Um, Look, I've seen S.J. Clarkson direct a lot of stuff like throughout her television career. I've never been blown away by her as kind of a, a visual storyteller but i i am not going to judge her on that because she's working within kind of the um the television industry in which you are pretty much trying to recreate the visual look of whoever directed the pilot episode of any given series the fact that she was given the reins to do something with the long night which would have been the game of thrones spin-off I, I would have been very, very intrigued to see what she was bringing to the table there, and it looks as if we're just never going to see this spinoff, you know, pilot, see the light of day, which is kind of very disappointed me. I, I'm very intrigued what this would have ultimately been, because I think that. There could have been kind of a cool story here, Cam, and and stay with me, interject if you have any thoughts here, but look, if if we have a time travel story in which, you know, James Kirk and George Kirk get to meet up, I, I just wonder if this would have provided opportunities to revisit, like, very notable kind of events within the tos canon you know like mm. could there have been an opportunity for george kirk and james kirk to revisit the short-leaf planet and the the giant easter bunny that was uh, roaming around or something like that could there have been you know the opportunity to meet apollo you know go see another green hand i think there could have been or, or, or what about tribbles cap you know mm. like they're like if you're popping in through notable events you know through time travel And they're trying to kind of like uh, duck and cover, you know, maybe go in like hats or fedoras, you know, like mustaches on, much like a Sam Kirk sort of character. That could have been just the most swashbuckling adventure we've ever seen in Star Trek, period. Like, I think that that could have been so much potential here. If this was never in the cards here, I just want to tell Paramount, uh, sorry, I mean, Paramount, like, uh, (laughs) you need to get me like uh, in that uh, writer's room pitching ideas, not Quentin Tarantino, just Put it out there, people.
0: Well, first off, I'm uh, a little hurt you don't remember the tribbles in Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> One of the great moments in cinema.
1: Cam, I I, I tried to extinguish that from my memory. That uh, <laughs> that was terrible. I don't need tribble blood running through my veins. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> and and secondly, when you're listing, you know, the ideas of hitting all these kind of famous moments in Star Trek. It's kind of what we loved about that Ephraim and Dot short trek, where we got to see this really fun, colorful journey through Star Trek fandom. And to me, that could be a lot of fun. And I think there's a way to do that for a general audience. I don't think you necessarily would portray it the same way, We're just like throwing out random moments from classic Star Trek episodes and hoping the general pers- the general public gets it. But, um,
1: well, well, no, I, I'll, I'll just say, like, I would say these are maybe Easter eggs for the fans yeah. and very bold sort of set pieces that would really pop to general audiences and look if you have like you know a, a moment of you know james kirk opening uh you know like a container and tribbles pour on top of him audi- general audiences are gonna get that moment
0: yeah oh totally i mean if you cut to like chris pine battling the gorn people are gonna get it like holy moly know, yes yeah You could have moments like that that I think people would be very excited. It really bummed me out this movie didn't happen because it just felt like I want to see this movie. I love this, you know, the Kelvin versus crew. We haven't gotten quite the level of adventure we've gotten since since, uh, Star Trek 2009, but we can. It's not impossible that it could happen again. And that crew just together buys a lot of goodwill. So I really wanted to see it. I guess the one thing we would have had to grapple with was the passing of Anton Yelchin at a very unfortunately young age. But um, I just felt like even going off of Beyond, a movie that you know didn't go out on maybe the high people hoped, things were in place for those adventures to continue. We had the Enterprise A, possibly Jayla would be in the film franchise. It felt like they were setting things up to pay off in the future.
1: Can I ask you this? Like, look, J.J., said outright they were not going to recast Anton Yelchin after his death, you know, would you have preferred that they acknowledge, you know, the death of Chekhov and that could be serving as sort of a motivation for Kirk and crew throughout this? Or would you have been okay if they had said, oh, you know what? Uh, Now Lieutenant Chekhov has... You know, taking a posting on the USS Reliant, and it, it's kind of a nod to Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan.
0: I'd prefer the transfer. Um, I just think, or the promotion and transfer. I just think it it gets a little heavy. In I mean, those Kelvin verse Star Treks are pretty well. Into Darkness gets a little moody, but by and large, they're pretty, you know, upbeat kind of swashbuckling, you know, um, space operas. I think it would get a little heavy if suddenly you're kind of reminding the audience of the the death of a
1: cast member. I know, like I, I, I it's tough because like I would want them to pay their respect to like who, who's just a great actor. Like it, how many crappy movies was Anton Yelchin in? Like not very many, and and he always delivered, even if it was a movie like Terminator Salvation, which wasn't that awesome. And but on the other hand, it's just like. It's kind of sad if we have to think that, you know, Chekhov died at an early age. I, I'd like to think that his legacy could continue hypothetically within the Star Trek universe, you know, by serving on the Reliant, for example.
0: I think they could have totally had a nice little moment where you have a crew member reflect on, you know, uh, maybe something that uh, that Chekhov left behind or something. Like, you can have that nice little moment and move on, um, and they probably would have dated. Did they dedicate Beyond to him, or was it too... I'm trying to remember the timeline. I there.
1: definitely remember Leonard Nimoy had, you know, kind yeah. of the dedication. I I think they must have said something about Anton Yelchin, right? They must have, right?
0: Yeah, because he had passed. Because I remember there was discussion about when they were toasting at the end of Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. that The camera held on him for like an extra second. And they were wondering if that was a... Um, something they'd kind of extended that shot in post, um, before the release of the movie. Uh, don't really know that was never confirmed in one way or the other, but uh, yeah, so that was kind of in the air there. I'm pretty sure there has to be some sort of acknowledgement in the credits of that movie. We could uh, easily go back and watch the tape on this one, but (laughs)
1: yeah. Well, okay. So like, I, unlike the Tarantino project, I think this one is officially dead. Mm -hmm. I just, I I, I don't think that this is going to be the way that you bring back the Calvin crew. And it's unfortunate. I like you, I would have loved to have seen this movie. And I think it could have come out, you know, as early as 2018, maybe 2019, like, which means we would have had four movies within the span of, say, like seven, eight years versus, you know, three movies in the span of 12 years.
0: It just shows you, though, like how... Maybe even more so, uh, studios are much more risk adverse with their franchises. You know, you go back to the original films and um, Final Frontier did not ver- do very well at all financially, but they still pulled the trigger on Star Trek Six.
1: Do, do you know it is? The, it's just, it's a status of Hollywood cinema. And like the, the only movies that are getting theatrical releases now mm. are the ones that either cost like a budget of like $4 million or $200 million and all the ones that are in the middle there they're getting kind of sucked up by you know your your Amazons, your Netflixes, you know your Apple movies at at this point too. Uh, Oh you know I should add the Apple Plus interface I would actually say it is second um, after Netflix. It is superior to than the uh, Disney Plus one so I'll, I'll just throw that out there as well I forgot to mention that.
0: It is actually pretty good, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just, like, I, I think Star Trek is just... That's the main reason why the executives are so gun-shy is because they know that they're going to have to... Or they think they have to drop, you know, $200 million into this movie. And they're just all too afraid to do that. I, I, like, I would much rather them drop, you know, $70, 80000000 million into a Star Trek movie... I just think that they're way too fearful of doing that because like nobody does that unless it's going to be like, I don't know. No, it's like streaming movies are usually that middle ground. It's usually around, I don't know, 30 to $50 million budgets, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, if you don't deliver like a franchise movie now that makes oof, maybe like 600 million plus, they're like, oh, like that didn't really pay off. (laughs)
1: I'm just thinking about, oh, plus we have a pandemic and who knows about the state of theaters. I I honestly think that, like, okay, people have been, like, calling about the demise of theaters. Don't you think people are just have this pent-up demand to stop watching movies at home, like, all the time? I honestly think, like, once it's safe to return to theaters, people are going to be pouring in because they just want to get out. They want to see that cinematic experience. I think that there's going to be just an explosion of cinema versus the opposite, which people have kind of been predicting amidst this pandemic. But I, I, I could totally, ha- you know, be in a position of eating crow, you know, within six months' time. I don't know.
0: Well, you know, judging from the grosses for Godzilla versus Kong, people do want to go back to the movies. <laughs> judging
1: by how lame that movie was, I think people are desperate to go to the movies. <laughs>
0: Look, after the last Godzilla movie, King of the Monsters was so awful. I've heard that this one's better, which is at least a step up in my book. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, Kim, okay, jumping over to the next project here. Uh, this is the Noah Hawley movie. Uh, for those that don't know, Noah Hawley is the uh, creator behind the Fargo television series. He also did Legion, which is kind of a uh, X-Men sort of spin-off television series. I've seen both shows. I will say this, as a visual storyteller, Noah Hawley is exactly what the Star Trek franchise needed. Like, Star Trek has never been about visual storytelling. It's always been kind of like, um, it, as far as the film franchise goes, especially though, it's, it's kind of the story-based stuff. I think J.J. Abrams has been like the most electric director that they've been able to tap over, you know, the last, you know, 35 years. All right, I, oh my God, no, 40 Two years, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, Noah Hollywood would have brought something, and, and who knows how coherent the movie as a story would have been um, from a story perspective. But I know from a visual, you know, storytelling perspective, it would have been engaging. I, I, I can just tell you this much from watching his uh, previous television shows. Um, but the problem is, Cam. It, it, from what we find out, it, this story dealt with like a virus. Um, <laughs> And, Perfect timing. Well, Bring it that's to me. <laughs> just it. like I I'm usually somebody who, who wants to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I have no doubt that this would have been like a very intriguing movie, but I'm telling you, somebody's lived uh, everyone's lived through the pandemic for the last like thirteen months, I have no interest in watching like a virus movie right now. Maybe give me five years or something like that. But if this movie's gonna come out in twenty twenty three, I don't think I would have been in the mood and I don't think general audiences would have been in the mood for A film in which, like, there's some sort of pandemic sort of plot line, even though this was, you know, well into the script stage, very, very close to the production stage as of uh, September 2020, before it was ultimately kind of put on ice. It seems like Noah Hawley
0: is someone, too, who he's been kicking the tires on franchise stuff. I mean, yeah, he did do um, the uh, X-Men spinoff there on TV, but... um... Just in terms of the film world, it seemed like he was kind of kicking the tires on franchise filmmaking, but also taking kind of interesting angles. I remember he was developing a Doctor Doom film, who is the um, nemesis of the Fantastic Four. And Doctor Doom, if you read the comics, you know, Doctor Doom is actually like a really compelling, intriguing character who who you could do a lot with. Now, people that have just watched the Fantastic Four movies would think he's the worst villain of all time and super lame. So... It felt like Noah Hawley was really going to do something potentially interesting with a, you know, I think very underserved character in the comics. So that kind of excited me because it's like, well, that's kind of weird. Who would make a Doctor Doom movie? This was before the days of Morbius movies and things like this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then, you know, he signs on to Star Trek. And I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. I don't know as much about Noah Hawley as you do, Tyler, because you've watched much of his TV work. But just the fact he was doing Doctor Doom movies and then jumping over to Star Trek showed me that, like... He wasn't the guy trying to make the latest Spider Man movie or the latest Batman movie. Like he had an interest in maybe, you know, mainstream properties that are a little bit niche, like maybe allow him a little more freedom. So just that alone kind of made me more interested in what he could do. And it's a bummer; it doesn't look like like it'll happen because I do think we need more visionaries uh, telling Star Trek films. I'm not a, f- I, I get a little tired of just in modern franchise filmmaking how they're kind of just farmed out to you know, directors who will kind of just do what the producers want. I, I, I'm i very nostalgic for the days when, like, Tim Burton made Batman movies. Um, I guess Chris Nolan as well, you know, to his credit in the um, Dark Knight series as well. But Noah Hawley was someone I think maybe could have done that with Star Trek. And he's not quite as, you know, radical as a Tarantino who might make a studio more nervous.
1: What do you think, though, from what we understand, though, Holly was not going to include the Kelvinverse, you know, crew, like, uh, would that have kind of bummed you out in that maybe we did not get to tie the knots, you know, give like a, a proper send off to that crew? Because I, I like Star Trek Beyond, but I feel as if that story is not quite finished just yet. Um, or are you kind of intrigued by the fact that he wanted to you know, create like this whole new cast of characters that we would be following, which is not something we've ever seen in Star Trek before?
0: Yeah, I was split on it. I mean, I definitely want to see the Kelvinverse crew continue because I thought, look, it's really tough to recast all those roles. And the fact they found great actors for all of them, and they had such a like incredible chemistry, you kind of want to hold on to that. Like a lot of studios would be very jealous of you having a property with a cast like that and having the chemistry you have on screen. Um, Paramount apparently didn't really care that much, but so I, I kind of missed the opportunity to have that cast back, but. Also, with the gap between beyond to when Holly was developing this, it was like, okay, it's getting kind of weird now. Maybe we need to just have a clean break and go in something, you know, and go
1: in a completely different direction. Maybe that's the right call. It's just so weird to me that out of all the projects we've discussed so far, This one seemed to be the closest to moving forward into production. Like, this one, like, he was tapping Jeff Russo as the composer. They had been doing a lot of preliminary artwork for this. He said it was close as it could be from going from pre-production to production, as you could imagine.
0: Like, this movie was going to happen, I think. (sighs) So...
1: Okay, so if it was ready to start filming, even amid the pandemic, we probably could have seen something by the end of this year. Maybe they would have put it off until 2022. So even then, you're, you're still taking, what, like, uh, I, I guess 13 years to produce four movies, which is still kind of bizarre to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, this might be, is this like the most high-profile movie really killed by the pandemic like a lot of things got delayed, you know, like Indiana yeah. Jones got delayed a long time. There was a number of movies that kind of had to go, you know, and just kind of take a breather. You know, Batman was put on hold for quite a while. But th- this Star Trek movie seems to have been completely, you know, um, shut down because of its, you know, um, connections to like a plague or something like that, a virus in its story.
1: Cam, I feel as if there is no COVID-19 then this movie would have been in the can by now like i i don't necessarily think it would have been released in theaters but it would have been shot and they would be doing post-production on it as we speak
0: yeah yeah all
1: okay. right well uh so jumping over <laughs> to the next project here um It is a script that has been worked on by one Kalinda Vasquez. She has uh, written uh, one episode of Star Trek Discovery. Cam, I am blanking on it, but I don't think it's a very Mm -hmm. well-regarded episode. Do you know off the top of your head? It is Terra Firma Part 2. Okay, that one was perhaps not as good as Terra Firma Part 1, but I don't think it's necessarily like a bad episode.
0: She also wrote Ask Not, the short track.
1: Which I thought we kind of had mixed feelings on. <laughs>
0: we're really bending over backwards to be like, wow, well, it was pretty good. I, okay. I, I, look, I
1: think if you are a writer for hire and you are told, well, this is a story, work within the parameters, develop the script, there's only so much you can do, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like these were not um, episodes she sat down and was like, guys, this is what I, this is my vision for a Star Trek Discovery episode. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. So uh, look, I, I I will not say that either one of those you know um, episodes are are bad. I I don't think so. They're just not ones that uh, blew me away necessarily. Um, so she was tapped to write the next script, but it really does not sound as if um, this is going to be the one that has been tapped for you know June twenty twenty three based on a report from Gizmodo. Um, they said sources say this is. Uh, The film that's coming out in 2023 is not going to be the Kalinda Vasquez script. So, Camp uh, Alex Kurtzman also did an interview um, just in the past week saying that, you know, the the line between Star Trek TV and Star Trek films, it, it no longer exists. And I wonder if people aren't reading into that interview in the right way. I wonder if what he's really... Telegraphing here is that Paramount Mm -hmm. Plus—it's not just about TVs. A TV series. It's—it's going to be about doing like film projects as well. And I don't think we necessarily have to just depend on Star Trek being a theatrical sort of film franchise. Like I really think that like what we might get here out of the script is a straight to streaming Star Trek movie that is not tied into you know um, crews that we've already met since 2017 when star Trek came back to television
0: yeah I definitely get the feeling of more of a streaming film and an event film I don't mean like a dinky little two-hour movie just showing up I think they could really put some heft behind this and make a very um you know a significant streaming movie but that's kind of what the vibe I get from this I just this doesn't seem like a um you know costly paramount big screen venture does it
1: it doesn't, but we also don't know anything about this one, yeah. really. I, I, like my suspicion, or or maybe a, maybe it's my suspicion because I, I I've read stories, but it, that this is not going to involve any of the familiar crews, right? Is, mm-hmm. Have you picked up on that?
0: That's the vibe I got because they kept uh, emphasizing it's an original film.
1: Yeah. So, okay. I look. I just I, I, I don't even know if I can say that much about it because I just don't know. Much better, right?
0: No. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's just like you're basically going off the credits of the writer. And that's kind of all you have to go off of. Just uh, Kurtzman saying, you know, the line between movies and TV is gone is also just interesting in the larger picture of what that even means for a Kelvinverse future. Um, If they even want to have two universes going on at the same time when they probably at this point want a little bit of, hey, people enjoy these movies check out the TV shows because we got those on
1: Paramount Plus. Okay. Hi. So, Cam, if I can think about maybe what I want moving forward from the Star Trek franchise. Like I I I think there's two different parallel studio strategies that we could maybe try to apply to Star Trek and film. We've got the DCEU versus the MCU, where the DCEU is all about like just let's You know, do kind of the shotgun approach, kind of you know the buckshot, and see what kind of sticks with audiences. They've had some success with uh, Wonder Woman or Wonder Woman, Aquaman, uh, Joker, for example. Mm -hmm. But it really does feel as if like their DC properties are just kind of all over the place. Whereas you have Kevin Feige leading the charge over at Marvel. And it really seems as if, like, he has a set strategy in mind. He has, like, a long-term plan that he wants to execute. You you get the sense that there is, like, a uh, an end point, even though, like comics, they just kind of keep going on and on forever.
0: Yeah, comics are second act. Uh, that's what they always say. It's an eternal second act
1: where you're never going to get to the finale. So... <laughs> what do you think would be the best strategy for the Star Trek film franchise moving forward between maybe those two comparisons that I drew there?
0: Well, the thing is, it's like, uh, I'm more excited about the idea of maybe a diversity of storytelling, which is, I guess, what the DC movies are doing. But I also don't think anyone in Hollywood's looking at the DC model saying we should do that, because even I don't even like the DC movies that much. I prefer the Marvel movies. It's just that... The Marvel movies sometimes you can get marvelled out. You know, there's a little bit of a sameness to them. Some of the movies really pop for me, and then you know the other ones just kind of fade into the background. But like a uh, Captain Marvel, yeah, Captain. There's a good example. Plus, we've recently had these Marvel TV shows, and I'm kind of finding those to be a little bit bland. Um, I- I'm okay with like kind of leaping all
1: over the place. Just please do it well. Don't do it the DC way. <laughs> I just... Oh, here's what I... Like, I agree with what you're saying, 100%. And here's what gives me trepidation. Okay, if you're going to have... Like, who is the Kevin Feige of the Star Trek franchise? Is it Alex, Alex Kurtzman? Kurtzman? It is, yeah. I don't get the sense that he has, like, this master vision of where to take it. Like, Kevin Feige, you know, this man loves the Marvel Universe. He grew up with it. He understands it in a way. He He's tapping into it, tapping the right talent in a way that I think is just exceptional. Whereas, I... I I don't know if that has been Alex Kurtzman's strength as more of an outsider to the franchise up until this point. And I, I'm not saying that you need somebody who's like a Star Trek nerd to give a direction. Look at like Nicholas Meyer. He didn't really care about, you know, the Star Trek until he was, you know, uh, hired to do the Wrath of Khan. But I just, I, Kurtzman is not giving me a, a, a lot of, faith up until this point, even though I, I've loved, you know, many of the um, adventures that we've had over the last, you know, four years at this point.
0: No, Kurtzman has never felt like a visionary. He feels like a guy who in some ways is in the right place at the right time um, to get the, the gig and has done some good stuff and done some pretty bad. I just wanted to sort of touch on Nicholas Meyer you referenced. Um, Nicholas Meyer, uh, there's a story on Trek movie a while back that he had pitched a movie to Paramount as well. Uh, He met with um, J.J. Abrams, met with um, Kurtzman, and had met with Emma Watts over at Paramount. And he pitched something that had a full treatment. He had illustrations. He said it was very comprehensive and could be a series, could be a film, could be a film leading to a series or vice versa. What do you think the odds are that that could even ever be a thing?
1: I would say it would be a Paramount Plus straight to streaming project. Like I... And I think it could be a very viable project as well, one that could attract more subscribers. I think it would be a smart move because I don't think it's going to cost like an arm and a leg the way that maybe the S.J. Clarkson or the Noah Hawley movie would have.
0: Yeah, and I just don't see Nicholas Meyer directing a big blockbuster. I mean, he hasn't directed a like big film since 1991 when he made Star Trek 6. I just have a hard time believing that Paramount would want him to be directing their expensive blockbuster. So I would be entirely down for a streaming movie, but, uh, yeah, I don't think it's likely to be the, uh, the one they've just announced
1: a date for. Unless your name is George Miller. Um, Hmm. I don't think you're giving like a giant budget to like a, uh, 75 year old director at this point.
0: Yeah. So do you think though, that I I was asking myself this question today, um, so often when we hear about upcoming Star Trek movies, the four we've talked about over the course of this episode, the four big projects, they often reference, well, producer J.J. Abrams. And it's because of Bad Robot's involvement, obviously. But when you look at the original six TOS, you had Harve Bennett there for much of it, um, at least four of the movies. Um, you had um, uh, Berman during the TNG movies, and those ones are definitely shakier, but they're consistent. Um is J.J. Abrams the wrong guy to be attached to this as a film producer?
1: I I wouldn't say he's the wrong guy. Just say that th- this guy's way too busy. Like he's not really attached to this. Like, yeah, like
0: that's that's what I kind of what I mean. Like yeah. he's not doing anything. Like I think they need a stronger producer, someone with maybe a name who's actually pushing the boulder uphill versus kind of like,
1: ah, oh, we could make one or not. I don't really care that much was well, isn't it a weird, like, years before even the Orville, like, premiered, you and I discussed who might be, like, a good producer to be kind of the shepherd of the Star Trek franchise moving forward. I, I think this is, oh, God, man, it makes me feel old considering, like, this is a discussion we had on the podcast probably in, like, 2015, that I think we mm. kind of landed on two people, which is either, like, Ben Stiller or uh, Seth MacFarlane, both who had, like, big credentials when it came to kind of producing, like, um movies television shows and they both obviously had like kind of a love and it it seemed as if they had like kind of an appreciation and understanding of what the star trek film french or star trek franchise meant um uh, inevitably like seth mcfarland does kind of like star trek cosplay with the orville i really don't know it, it, it's so because the, the the series just seems very derivative of star trek it's not taking it you know, to bold new places at all, but it seems to have made a lot of fans happy. I just don't know if he's the guy to bring in new audiences though, either.
0: No, I think it has to just be someone maybe we wouldn't even think of. Just someone who is, because like, we had not really heard of Kevin Feige before, you know, the, the real rise of Marvel. I mean, he'd worked on, you know, the original Spider-Man and X-Men films, but in a much, uh, much um, less powerful position. And so I think you just kind of need someone to rise up and really wrangle Star Trek into a motion picture entity. But I just don't know if that's going to happen in this era as much.
1: I, I just, it's tough for me to say this, but I just don't know if, you know, Viacom knows who to tap for this role because it seems to me that like after Alex Kurtzman, Akiva Goldsman, is the go-to guy for Star Trek, mm-hmm. and that does not really um, fill me with faith. Uh, I, I will say, just based on the output that we've seen from him at this point.
0: No, no, it really doesn't. And if you follow the world of film, like uh, Akiva Goldsman is not someone you want attached to your genre projects uh, in terms of the, you know actual movies and. The fact that he's now such a prominent role in Star Trek TV, it's kind of strange. And I think the results have been fairly mixed of the things he's been associated with so far. I'm very hopeful for strange new worlds, but it doesn't seem like they've found, oh boy, two guys with the most bulletproof of track records for producing content.
1: Okay. Look, it seems so cliched of me as a Star Trek fan to suggest this I, as if I'm not really thinking outside the box, but I maybe I'll, I'll go without it. I think it's safe. But I, I would say Ronald D. Moore, like just mm. I, I, I'm looking at his post Star Trek output. I'm looking at stuff like Battlestar Galactica, which I think is really his effort to say this is what I wish Star Trek Voyager could have been. And it, it it's all about character based storytelling. But he's also doing very provocative things, very progressive, uh, things as well, which is kind of aligned with, you know, kind of the image Star Trek likes to project and uh it's been successful at that to varying degrees over the last 50 plus years um i'm also watching for all mankind on apple tv plus right now this is like what i wish star trek was doing right now in terms of character-based storytelling that is aspirational while going to some places that can also be considered kind of dark or or you know like a little bit edgy and I, i really think like this guy has been able to go outside of the star trek sphere Prove his creative chops in a way that makes me confident he could come back into Star Trek and do something very interesting, shepherd the franchise as a whole in a, in a great way. But I, I think he just signed a deal with um, Disney uh, just in the last couple of months. Um, he says he has some ideas for Star Wars at this point. There, there, there's just no chance in hell that he is going to be involved in Star Trek. This man, I, I think, is into his 50s at this point. This might be his last big, you know, deal. Unless I don't know they they want to grab him like when he's in his sixties. Are you hiring like a uh, a sixty something year old man to really be the shepherd of Star Trek? You know, maybe the year twenty thirty. I, I I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's definitely like he would be the fan favorite. People would be so excited if he signed on to do it. Um, I would never rule out him doing something with Star Trek again. I don't know that they'd hand a film franchise over to him though. That's my question mark more so. Uh, I would see them he, maybe He did write him... two
1: Star Trek movies. I'll just, I'll just point that out.
0: Do they look at those as like real movies, though? Or do they kind of look at those older Star Trek films a little bit of,
1: eh, well, those are I, I,
0: smaller compared to what we want to do these days.
1: I, I know what you're saying, but I still think that he could kind of point to the fact that First Contact is genuinely considered like either the best or the second best of all the Star Trek films. And I think that just gives him some street cred, and maybe the studio executives would have to go like, oh... Okay, like he tapped into something there.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One I think would be interesting, and I'm not even so much pitching this person as so much the concept of this. Like, I was a big fan of the recent um, Planet of the Apes trilogy that Matt Reeves did two of, and um, Mark Bombach was a producer on those films as well as wrote the scripts for um, Dawn and War of the last two films. And he's someone who very much understood the tone of the property and the franchise he was making and also had a creative role and as a producer. So I would like, you know, I'm not saying necessarily Mark bomb back to take over star Trek that he, maybe it's a bad fit, but someone who's tackling a very specific sci-fi story, but also has, you know, the, obviously the business smart uh, smarts, but also the creative ability to really deliver, exactly what it is on the screen without filtering it down, without turning it to something weird or, you know, kind of opportunistic to try and grab an audience. Just someone who understands the essence of what it is. I think that could be really exciting. And it's something that I don't think Alex Kurtzman really has. I think like, you know, his writing on Star Trek, it's so tough to say with the Kelvin Burst movies because they were such a team effort. But I don't know that he necessarily understands the essence of Star Trek the way that, well, at least I personally would like.
1: All right, well... Maybe we, we can wrap with this. Would you like to see the fourth Star Trek movie be just something entirely different, like a a, a new corner of the galaxy, so to speak, a, a different kind of cast? Or, or do you want some closure with the Kelvinverse crew? Maybe, I don't know. I'm throwing this out there, Cam. Maybe the movie starts with them all in those motion picture uniforms. The timeline kind of matches with that based on, you know, uh, Chris Pine's age versus Shatner's uh, age. And maybe they get into the Wrath of Khan uniforms by the end of this movie to kind of signal where they're going. Where, where do you think we should go with Star Trek IV?
0: Look, I'm the most excited for a Kelvin verse team you know getting to have kind of their final adventure or what have you that to me would be very satisfying just to see again because I love that cast and let's get them together while we still can Um, because yeah you just uh, it seems like such a missed opportunity to not give them at least one more movie but I just think after this type of time gap where we're going to be looking at like six or seven or maybe even eight years who really how many years is it I guess Um, what is that seven years
1: between movies uh, from, uh, yeah, seven
0: years, sir. Yes,
1: that's quite a gap. So I also do... Want that's like going time. directly from Search for, search for Spock to uh, The Undiscovered Country, almost.
0: Yeah, like, that's pretty drastic. Um, That's why I wonder if it is time to just go in a whole new direction. And maybe that will open up avenues that will allow this to be a healthier film franchise versus one that's so touch-and-go where... Like, I know if they were putting out the next Kelvinverse movie, I would be very nervously looking at the box office that weekend thinking like, oh God, like, is this it? Is this the sad end or are we going to keep going?
1: I agree with you. I just think that the Kelvinverse crew is just so much easier to market. It's just such a safer bet for Paramount. I just, but I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. Then like, uh, I would be nervously looking at the box office numbers, but look, if they kind of like tie a bow on it, give it a little bit more of uh, closure than what I thought we got with Beyond, then I could live happily knowing that some studio dumped $200 million into something that cost me $18 to go to the theater and feel you know, some satisfaction with.
0: Totally. And could you see them ever, though, making a Star Trek film without a marketable franchise friendly character? Like, a character I mean that people know. Um... <sighs> No, no. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, cause I remember you and I talking about whether they would ever reboot TNG for the movies or reboot Voyager or something like that. It feels like Paramount would be very nervous making a Star Trek movie that didn't have, uh, you know, like a Spock or a Seven of Nine at least.
1: I, I still don't think even like a, a Seven of Nine would be the one to kind of draw audiences in, you know? Even though, like, I just, I think... Uh brent spiner is not going to do it even though they improved the uh data you know irishman effects later on i just i i I can't imagine who would be the go-to though like quark you know like arm of getting getting that makeup once again like i i i don't know cam i know
0: one guy who would be more than happy to uh show up on the big screen and that is mr jonathan frakes
1: (laughs) I thought you were going to say Shatner, which I could totally, I could totally <laughs> Him mind. Him too.
0: Him too. <laughs> okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod.
1: Tyler, what do we doing next time? Cam, we will be continuing our ongoing series of ranking all the seasons of Star Trek. And we are jumping next towards ranking the seasons of Deep Space Nine this is going to be a doozy. I assure you that listeners
0: mm, this is going to be a difficult ranking I'm looking forward to doing it okay you can of course find us on the Twitter I'm at cam V is in V'ger is the marketable character to bring back to Star Trek Smith no
1: Vasquez comma Kalinda shout out for you this week
0: all V'ger all the
1: time okay uh, you can find me at reporton that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N N as in Noah Holly. Not boring.
0: <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.